Let me ask you, how many of you here today, I'll wait for Gene. How many of you here today would say that you're saved? Okay, now, without answering out loud, just in your mind, if someone were to ask you, what does it mean to be saved, what would you say? Again, don't answer out loud, because I know some of you can't help yourself. What does it mean to be saved? And I would suggest to you that most people, even in this church, would suggest that salvation is a one-time experience with eternal benefits. You think about things like, on that day in which I said the salvation prayer, sometimes called the sinner's prayer, on that day my sins were forgiven, that's a one-time experience, that day, with eternal benefits, and I'm going to heaven. But I would suggest to you that is not really how the Bible describes salvation. In fact, <clears throat> the Bible talks about salvation as present benefits based upon a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how the Bible talks about it. Listen to these verses. Just listen to them. Psalm 18.31. I will call upon the Lord. In other words, I have the right to do that because I have salvation, because I have a relationship with God. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, so shall I be saved from my enemies. That's a present benefit in my life. Psalm 107.13. Then they cried out to the Lord in their trouble, and He saved them out of their distresses. Now, I know both of those are Old Testament scriptures. So what does the New Testament say about salvation? 2 Corinthians 2, verse 15 says, For we are to God the fragrance of Christ among those, now get this wording, among those who are being saved. Not just who are saved, who are being, ongoing, saved. The Bible makes it clear that salvation is as much an ongoing process as it is a single event back in time when you said the sinner's prayer. Although we are 100% fully saved in that moment in which we express our faith in Jesus Christ and that which He has accomplished for us in the cross and the resurrection, there is still something that is going on in our lives that Paul tells us in Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean that you're able to save yourself. Jonah makes it very clear. He says salvation is of the Lord. But what it does mean is that there are present benefits to our salvation that we have to learn and embrace and apply in our lives on a day-by-day -day basis. How many of you would recognize already at this point in your life that much of the battle that goes on in our Christian life happens up here? Right? It's a battle of lies, of thoughts. Even in here, it's, it's a battle of feelings. How many of you have ever said something like, I just, know, I, I just don't, I don't feel good today? You don't even know why. You just, I just don't feel good today. I feel grumpy today. I know for some of you that's an everyday experience, but for some of you, it's like you just feel it. Well, that's what he's talking about when he says, 
work out your salvation. He's saying, take that which God has purchased for you and begin to apply it on an everyday basis in your life. So, we're in James. Turn to James chapter 1. This is our last message in James 1. There's more in James 1 than what we could handle in the time that we have, but I want to kind of finish out James chapter 1 today. I want you to see that when James talks about being saved, he talks about it not as eternal benefits based upon a one-time experience, but he talks about it as an ongoing process in every one of our lives. James 1 and verse 19. James 1.19, if you're turning there. So then, my beloved brethren, let every man and woman be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Therefore, lay aside all filthiness and overflow of wickedness, and receive with meekness the implanted word, now listen to the wording here, which is able to save your soul. He's talking about that word that you have received has the ability to work salvation into you. But be doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror, for he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. Now, when I was a kid, uh, we had, um, maybe they're still out there, I don't know. We had stories that we learned that were called fairy tales. Do you guys still have those today? I don't know. I don't know if they've gone out the way of Frozen or whatever, but um, one of the fairy tales we had had a line in it that went something like this. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? And invariably, the mirror gave the wrong answer. at least as far as the wicked witch was concerned. Mirrors are intended to give us a right image of ourselves and of the world around us. Now, let me just ask you, how many of you parents, no matter how old your kids are, have an image of your kids in your mind? You see them in a certain way. And it might have nothing to do with what they look like today. Like, like for me, this is how I see my kids right here. Can you put up that first picture? That's how I see my kids. That's Jonathan, Jeremy, and Jennifer. You got to admit, look at those faces. Just look, just look. They, they were so cute. Look, look at this picture of them. And tell me Jennifer doesn't look just like Izzy right there. Look at Jeremy's face. He was the happiest little boy. I have an image in my mind. It has nothing to do with reality. That's not what they look like now. But that's, when I think of my kids, that's 
how I see them in my mind. How many of you have images of yourself that you see in your mind? You know, when you think of yourself, you think of yourself in a certain way. This is kind of how I think of myself right here. Just young, virile, 134 pounds, and a almost full head of hair. Or this one. This one, I like this one. This is one of my favorites. Isn't she beautiful? I was looking at that this morning thinking, wow. Why in the world did she pick me? Wow. Look at this next one. This is like one of our favorites. This was us breaking every Elam rule. <coughs> walking hand-in-hand in, hand in Letchworth Park. She was wearing bib overalls, and I was wearing jeans and my flannel shirt. I mean, we were good. Whoa, man. These days, you can take that down because it'll bother us. Um, <laughs> these days, I get up in the morning, and I go into our bathroom, and I look in the mirror, and I want to go back and ask Karen, who in the world is that old man in our bathroom? Um, what James is talking about in James 1, 19 and following is how we see ourselves. Having a right view of ourselves. Seeing ourselves as we really are. Not as we think about ourselves in our fantasies. James is telling us that God can only save the real us, not the pretend us, not the us that puts on a mask or an image that other people can look at. Um, <clears throat> when I was at Elam, a leader took me aside one day and told me something that I just didn't believe. I honestly didn't. They took me aside and they said, Chris, do you realize that people are intimidated by you? Again, I'm like 19, 20 years old, 21 maybe. People intimidated by me? I mean, that made no sense to me because I had a different view of myself than other people did. I thought I was the one who was intimidated by everybody. I was the one who was afraid of people. I was a big teddy bear. So why would anybody be afraid of me? But until I was willing to get a correct view of myself, there was no way I could ever change and grow as a person. As long as I held on to a false image, I would never be saved in an ongoing basis. Many years ago, uh, Queen Elizabeth, the Queen of Great Britain. Many years ago, Queen Elizabeth, who apparently was quite beautiful in her youth, that was before my time, but she ordered that all mirrors be taken out of the palace. If you went to Buckingham Palace, now if you were invited to go to Buckingham Palace and do a tour, you would find no mirrors in the entire place because she did not want to look at herself and realize that she was getting old. And I think sometimes we do the same thing. 
or we might not remove the mirrors, but we're unwilling to look at the real us. What's really going on inside of us that causes us to act the way that we do. Maturity is learning how to face who you really are and admitting your need. That's maturity. All of James is about how we can grow up, how we can mature, how we can grow in our faith. Well, in order to do that, you have to start with some truth, some things in your life. So, I want to read the rest of this section here, verse 25, if you're following along in your Bible, James 1.25. But he who looks into, now again, he's already talked about looking into a mirror, so now he's making a comparison. He who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble, and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. Now, way back in verse 19, James starts out this section by calling them beloved brethren. So he's clearly talking to Christians. Yet in verse 21, he talks about the Word of God is able to save your soul. And when he uses that word save, I know some of you won't care about this, but it's important. There are several tenses in the Greek language. Uh, in English language, we have like past, present, and future. But in Greek, they have more tests, they have tense. They have one tense called the aorist tense, A-O-R-I-S-T. And in Greek, that word saved is in the aorist tense. What that means is it's in current event, but with ongoing implications. It's kind of like when you hit a key on the piano and you hit at the same time what is called the sustain pedal. It means you hit that key and that was a one-time event, but the sound carries on. That's the wording that James uses. It's talking about a salvation event but with ongoing application and implication in your lives. And then James tells us that God wants to confront three issues in all of our lives, three things that impact us that God wants to save us from. <coughs> the first is hostility, and then hypocrisy, and then finally, habitual religion. So we're going to look at those three really quickly today, as quick as I can. Uh, because I'm trying to fit all of this in in such a short time, it feels like it's packed in. There's a lot of points. Uh, ben said to me, there's a lot of slides, but I think you'll be able to follow the flow of it. So the first thing I want to look at is how we get salvation to be saved from hostility. That's in verses 19 to 21. Now, this whole book is written to Christians who because of intense persecution were being scattered all over the known world. And one of the things that can happen, one of the responses to ongoing persecution, to an erosion of things that happen inside of us, to trials and troubles, one of the things that can happen to us, especially when it seems prolonged and unfair, 
is that we can get angry inside. Um, as I was preparing, I don't know who this is for, I really don't, but I felt like for somebody or somebody's here today, you're in that place. You got saved. When you got saved, when you said the sinner's prayer, when you started coming to church, when you began to believe in faith in God, you did it because you thought God would save you from some things. You thought God would finally heal your parent or your loved one. You thought that God would save your marriage. You thought God would help you with your addiction. You thought God would bring back your wandering child. You got saved for a purpose. And yet, once you got saved, it seems like you still have troubles. You still have struggles. In fact, sometimes, isn't it true that it can seem like things almost get worse than better? And sometimes the response when that happens is you can get just sick and tired of it. You get a little bit peeved inside, a little bit angry. It's like, God, this isn't fair. I love you. Why is this stuff still happening to me? Why am I still sick? I believe in healing. Why am I still struggling with this stuff? Why do I still have this habit? I keep saying to myself, shut up, shut up, shut up, and it keeps coming out of my mouth. Why won't you save me from myself? And one of the responses, when things are prolonged and they don't seem to get better, is that we can get angry inside. And so James begins to talk to us about this whole issue, and he gives us some kinds of things. Uh, I mean, if you think about it, think about this whole issue of anger. It, maybe it's just because I've lived a little while, but doesn't it seem like the world is getting angrier? I mean, think about it. We've got kids shooting up schools today. Back in my day, we brought our guns for show and tell. You can't go to the post office without wondering who's going to have postal rage. There is so much anger in the world that, I mean, you can't go to a concert without some sniper up above taking shots. Movie theaters are no longer safe. Schools aren't safe. Hospitals aren't safe. Churches aren't safe. It's an angry world. And so what happens is what's inside of us, a lot like popcorn, when you put it under heat and pressure, it begins to explode. And James talks about that. He says we need to be saved from hostility, from our anger. And then he begins to give us some points about this, about ways that God can save us from our anger, from our hostility. The first one he says, and I'm going to give them to you really quick. Number one, don't be a nuclear reactor. He says be swift to hear. Let me ask you, have you ever met someone who's a reactionary? I wish you'd stop looking at me because I resemble that a lot. Anyone who knows me, anyone who's ever had to work with me or live with me, knows that one of the things I hate about myself is I'm a reactionary. I react, and then I step back and I process, but it's too late. It's kind of like, you know, the aerosol can. You spray it out there, and then you try to collect it all back in. The wise man 
Solomon said, he who answers a matter before he fully hears it, it's a folly and shame to him. God gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. So that we would learn to listen. But what are we to listen to? We're to listen first and foremost to God's heart. What is God's heart about the situation that you're dealing with? Not how do you feel about it. What's God's heart? Let God's heart. We, we sang that this morning. Let God's heart grip our heart. But then we're also supposed to listen to the heart of people. Listen beyond their words. Listen beyond the ranting. What's going on in them that drives this venting? Listen to God. And listen to people. And I got to tell you, James tells us, if you don't do this, if you're not swift to hear, then what happens is, because you have already reacted, stuff has come out, you have to go back and you have to process all of the fallout from this nuclear bomb that you have just blown up in people's faces. And I find myself doing that a lot. Do you? Do you find yourself having to go back and fix things? That's what James is talking about. Be swift to hear. Don't you think that if we could get this one thing in our heart and minds, just this one, one, don't you think this would save us a world of trouble? Swift to hear. Number two, he says, don't talk yourself into trouble. Be slow to speak. Solomon says it this way, in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking. He says, where there's a lot of words, you can bet there's going to be some sin. Have you noticed that the more we talk, the more we end up saying things we shouldn't? And once those words are out in the air, it's too late. I don't know about you, but I have often thought, I, I must have been born with not a silver spoon in my mouth. I was born with my foot in my mouth. I say things. What in the world were you thinking? And that's the problem. I wasn't. I was reacting. I wasn't responding by the heart of the Spirit. I was responding by my own flesh. And I wanted to say it because I felt it. How many of you have left conversations and wished you had never said that? I used to carry a card in my wallet. I had it typed and laminated. Just a little card, business card size, so it could fit right in my wallet. And when I would go to meetings, I would take this card out and I would hold it in my hands, just like this. And I would sit in the meeting. And when I was tempted to speak, I'd look down at the card and I'd remember. The card simply said, shut up. <laughs> Did. I don't carry that card anymore. Maybe I should. But it was a reminder to me that once words come out because you're swift to speak instead of swift to hear and slow to speak, it's too late. Some people just like to express their thoughts and opinions. Sometimes I think Facebook is like uh, the tool of the enemy. 
because people treat it like it's their private diary in which they're venting to God, but they're venting in front of the whole world. And then when people respond, all of a sudden you have this trail behind you of 180-some responses arguing together. Uh, when I was growing up, we would go to the Whitaker side of the family. That's my mom's side, the Whitakers. And I can guarantee this. There would be two things that would happen at every gathering. Didn't matter what went on. There would always be two things. We would have food, and we would have arguing. The Whitakers loved to argue, and each of them was 100% convinced they were right. And there was no give in them. Some Christians are just like that. It's not a matter of whether or not it lines up with the word of God and the kingdom of God. They want to express an opinion. God help us to get to a point in our growth where it's no longer about what the world says, what Republicans say, what Democrats say, what any other political arena or any other sociological or psychological arena says. What does God say? And how does God say it? Because you can say the truth in a wrong way. That's why he said speaking the truth, how? In love. Choose our words carefully and prayerfully. Number three. Number three, and this is all under saved from hostility. Don't give in to anger. He says be slow to wrath. Why? He says, because man's anger does not work or produce the righteous life that God desires. Through anger, I, I saw this, somebody posted this online, and I love this. Through anger, Satan often gains a toehold, which leads to a foothold, which leads to a stronghold, and ultimately ends with a stranglehold. Paul puts it this way. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down upon your wrath, nor give place to the devil. Paul links together anger. Now hear this. This is important. Paul links together anger as being the platform that the enemy gains access to your life. It gives place, he says. Gives room for the enemy. Your anger. You can call it, well, I'm just that kind of person. You can say, well, I, I'm a truth person. I had somebody once say to me some of the most God-awful stuff, and I mean God-awful stuff. I don't even know if I can say that phrase. Can I say that phrase? No, I can't. It was terrible. It was hateful. It was mean-spirited. And when this person got all done, they looked me in the eye. I mean, it was attacking. When they got all done, they said, I can't help myself. I'm just a truth person. I wanted to say, number one, that wasn't even the truth. Number two, even if it were, you've just nullified it by a hateful spirit. Your anger gives the enemy a diving platform to jump into your life. Think about that every time. Your anger gives the enemy legal right to your life because of how you have comported yourself. Um, let me give you an example that might not be the best example. I'm sure it's not, but it's the one that I could think of. I believe that abortion is wrong. I believe that 
abortion is a sin. I believe that the abortion is the taking of a human life. And I believe that a natural response ought to be that we are upset when abortion occurs. I think a natural response might even be anger. But it's what you do with the anger that matters. If in anger you take your, your rifle and you go and you look in the window of Dr. Selepian and you shoot that man to death, I would suggest to you, I don't care how righteous you thought your anger was, your anger became sinful and murderous. Right next to that, I've lived long enough, and I know some of you are going to be angry at me for even saying this, which God help you in your anger. Right next to that, I have the awareness that some of our dear ladies in our society are caught in places they don't know what to do. They're pregnant. And they have no one to support them, no one to help them. And our society says abortion is an easy resolve. And many of them, not knowing what else to do, maybe out of fear, embarrassment, shame, maybe just because they don't know any better, have an abortion. What should our response be to the ladies? I think it should be love and acceptance. At all times. Because they're too made in the image of God. I have enough sin in my own life. I don't have time or room to be judging somebody else. I can still hold to the fact that I believe abortion is wrong, and it can sicken me at times to know that we so easily in our society just treat a human life as expendable. But I can still at the same time love people. Your anger, unrighteous anger, does not produce the life that God desires for you. Proverbs 14, 17 says, a quick-tempered man acts foolishly. <coughs> Proverbs 29, 22. An angry man stirs up strife, and a furious man abounds in transgression. Anger is not only unproductive, it's counterproductive to the kingdom of God. Let me say that again. Anger is not only unproductive, it is counterproductive to the kingdom of God. Your wrath, your anger, your opinion that makes you hateful on Facebook, attacking other people because you don't agree with their opinion, all in the name of, quote, truth, that anger doesn't work the righteousness of God. In fact, I think it would do many people well if they would take a hiatus from Facebook altogether and start carrying in their wallet a little card. And I'll let you determine what it should say. When anger controls our responses, I believe the Spirit of God is prevented from working in our lives and producing His righteousness through us. Number four, reject the sin that rides shotgun with anger. Too often, we excuse sinful behavior, our anger. Well, after all, I'm Irish. I can't help it. I got red hair and green eyes. 
That's not a good combination. Well, anger just runs in our family. We, we, we're all like this. We, we just can't help it. I'm like my father, and my father was like his father. It, just, it runs in our family. Do you know what all of that's called? It's called blame shifting. It's called not taking personal responsibility. And that's the sin that rides shotgun with our anger. Jesus, through his word, says two things to us. One is in verse 21. He calls it filthiness, and then he calls it wickedness. Now, interestingly, wickedness is the word from which we get our word malignancy. He said that kind of thinking that excuses your sin is like a cancer that will kill you. And then the word filthiness, it's, an, it's a funny word, forgive me, but it's true. It literally means earwax. That which plugs up your ability to hear from God anymore. He's saying, when you make excuses and you blame others, you made me do this. It wouldn't have happened if you hadn't done that. When you do that, you take away your ability to hear the Spirit of God in that moment and what God would say to you. When you blame others, when you blame your spouse, you're in the middle of a discussion. He says something, and you get upset inside, and you react, and you say, well, that's not right. Well, I wouldn't have acted that way if he hadn't said that, if she hadn't said that. It's malignant earwax that keeps you from hearing the voice of God. Proverbs 19.11 says, The discretion of a man makes him slow to anger, and his glory is to overlook a transgression. Proverbs 22.24 says, Make no friendship with an angry man, and with a furious man do not go, lest you learn his ways and set a snare for your soul. And finally, number five, this is all under point number one, by the way. So just keep your outline going right. Number five, embrace the truth of God's word. Receive with meekness the implanted word. Here is where James begins to give us some answers for our struggles. He says the answer is in the word of God. And the truth is, you know that. You already know that the word has the ability because it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword, able to divide between joint and marrow, soul and spirit. You know that already. Yet how often do we not go back to the word to let the word soak into the soil of our heart to make us ready to receive the implanted seed of his word? David said, your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. So let me give you just quickly three, three kind of ways to look at the Word and handle the Word of God, the seed, the meekness with which we receive it. The first is this. Read it. Read it. Back in the day, mirrors are not like they are today. They weren't clear images. In fact, sometimes the mirror image was off of a rock, a shiny rock, or off of water, or off of a piece of metal. And you would have to get down and you'd have to go at all kinds of angles to get it closely. And the word that James uses there in verse 21, he says, look into the word, is the word to kneel down and to study carefully. So the first thing you need to do is you need to read it and to study it, to look at it, 
to love the Word of God. The second thing we need to do is we need to rehearse it. James says he not only looks into it, but he continues in it. The word that we often use is the word meditation. Meditation doesn't mean putting your mind in neutral and just considering your own navel lint. That's not what it's about. Meditation is where you take the word in and you think about it. You let it process in your mind over a period of time where you say, what does this mean? In fact, Jesus says, if you hear my word and you continue in it, then you will be my disciples. David said, I will meditate on your word all the day long. What is it that you spend your time thinking about more than anything else? Where's your mind go when you lay down at night? When you're doing your workout, where does your mind go? And finally, number three under this, retain it. He says, we're to continue in it, not being a forgetful hearer. We remember what's important to us. Think about that. I mean, husbands, I know that you go to the grocery store, your wife gives you a list of three things, you get there, and it's a good thing we have cell phones now because you call her back and you say, honey, I remembered two of the things and I don't remember the third. And you tell her what the two things are. She goes, okay, well, first of all, I didn't ask for either of those two things. And these are the three things I need. But if something's really important to you, isn't it amazing that you can remember it? Take notes. Maybe for some of you, it's keeping a journal. Maybe for some of you, you just that's not what's in you. But take note of what you're reading and remember it. Allow it to sink into you, which then for me leads into James' second point overall. So the first was to be saved from hostility. The second one that he deals with is saved from hypocrisy. And this one's going to be much quicker. In fact, these both are, the last two. Be saved from hypocrisy. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only. Now, what you need to know is that in the Greek language, there are a lot of words for hear. Hear, H-E-A-R. But the word that James uses is the Greek word akuo. Akuo. A-K-U-O. Akuo. And it literally means to note sounds. It's the old if a tree falls in the forest and no one's there to hear it, does it make a sound? That, that's kind of what James is getting at. There's not a one of you who's married who hasn't had your spouse talk to you and in the middle of it you tune out because you just saw an amazing play. I can't believe Gerard just did that. And you're like, uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. And your spouse knows, sure, shooting, you're not listening to a word that's being said anymore. You're hearing sounds. You might even be able to dredge up in your silly old mind the words that were used, but you were not listening. That's what James is talking about. He says, don't just be a person who notes their sounds, but if you're going to listen, it will mean you become a doer. So he gives a command. The first is, don't just be a hearer. Don't just hear sounds. But then he gives a comparison. He says, to be a hearer and not a doer is like looking in the mirror. It, it would be like Jean getting up this morning, looking in the mirror, and realizing she has mom head. 
And she looks in the mirror and she says, oh, church today. Mom had, I don't care. It's looking into the mirror and realizing you've got spinach between your teeth and you don't do anything about it. That's the comparison that James is making. You look into the mirror of his word, but you don't apply anything to your life. We talk about people who audit courses at college. It's where you pay a certain amount of money. You can go to the course, but you don't get a grade for it because you don't have to take notes. You don't have to do anything. You can just sit back, fold your arms, and smile. And he says that's the problem, is that a lot of people are auditing the word. They're hearing it, but they're not applying it because they're just auditing the course. They don't care. Oh, yeah, I'm just going through all the motions. They come church Sunday after Sunday. They listen to God's word, and they walk out without any intention of applying that word to their lives. You just came to see, what did Pastor Chris have to say today? Let's see if it was even interesting. Let's see if it was engaging. Let's see if he said any funny stories, any good jokes, any moving stories that would make me cry but I had no intention of applying anything that you said to my life. I'll take care of myself, thank you very much. That's what James calls auditing. And the test of maturity is not knowledge. The test of maturity is character. It's allowing the Word of God to change you from the inside out. It's where you move from a transactional commitment to God to a relational commitment with God. Where it's no longer just about, I will be a Christian if God will do this for me. Because I am a Christian, I'm going to comport myself in a certain way by God's grace. James puts it this way, to him who knows to do good and doesn't do it, to him it's sin. Which leads me to my third and final point. First was to be saved from... Um, Hostility, be saved from hypocrisy. Now third, is saved from habitual religion. Religion is just a habit. I read an article once that was entitled this, Many Believe, Few Practice. Many Believe, Few Practice. Uh, how many of you guys listen to podcasts? Thank you. How many of you watch Christian TV at all? Some of you. How many of you listen to Christian radio at all? Some of you. Isn't it true that there's more good biblical preaching and teaching out there than almost ever before? I mean, you can be inundated. And some people even have the privilege of coming to church and hearing good, godly, biblical, anointed preaching. We have more information and more knowledge than ever before. But we're just going through the motions. We began to tune out. And James says, when you do that, when you just go through the motions, your faith is useless, is the term that he uses. That person's religion is useless. It, it's, if what you believe, though it might be true, if what you believe isn't at work in your life, it's not real. Even though it's true, it's not real. And James says, if you want to have true faith, it's got to be engaged. It must be lived out. James is giving us a challenge. It's a call to honesty. It's a call to authenticity. It's not acting one way in church and another way at home. I can't tell you how many times over the years I've had people come to me, and I'm grateful for the conviction of the Holy Spirit. 
And they will say to me, well, you, you didn't know this, but this is how I've been acting at home. I know I don't seem that way, but this is what I've been doing. I've known leaders in churches who have been abusive in their homes. I know people who struggle with great addictions. And it's a very real thing. They're hard to break. But it starts with being honest, with saying, I have a need. And only God is my real resource. Only God can truly save me. It starts with being honest, being authentic. Just attending a church, becoming a member and giving your tithes, just standing with hands raised doesn't make you a Christian. It's letting God's life inside of you and lived out in you and through you. He says in verse 26, If anyone among you thinks he's religious and doesn't bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is useless. And then he gives us three things, just really quickly, three things that mark true faith. Number one, a controlled tongue. That's what he says. Doesn't bridle his tongue. So he's talking about our speech, our language, and our attitude. I recognize that sometimes in God's word, people said some really harsh things like you brood of vipers. One of the things that Jesus said to the Pharisees. Can I suggest to you that when you use that as your basis for using crude, harsh language, everything in me wants to say, you're not Jesus. I know Jesus and you're not Jesus. I don't say that because that might be considered mean. But I think it. <laughs> it's one of the things where I looked at my card first. Um, I recognize that there's a lot of stuff going on out in this world that's not right. Let's not add to it our angry rhetoric, our harsh, mean words. All in the name of, you, you do realize that the kingdom of God is greater than any, re, any religion or any political arena that's in this world. You do realize that, right? The kingdom of God is overall. You are citizens of the kingdom. You might be citizens of the U.S. or maybe not. But if you're a Christian, you are a citizen of the kingdom of God. And that supersedes all. But if you live for the kingdom properly, you will become a good citizen of whatever nation you're in. Because you'll do it with right attitude and right words. And then the second thing he says is a caring heart. Talks about visiting orphans and widows in their trouble. That deals with our relationships with people. We're living it out well. Whatever's in us that is God, we want to live towards people. There are people in our town who are on uh, programs because we're the county seat. They're in mental health, some of them. Some, some of them are dealing with substance abuse issues. Some of them just have some other issues in life that have made it challenging for them. You do realize that every single one of those people that you meet downtown, no matter what they look like or how they comport themselves, they're loved by God. You do know that, right? They are dearly loved. They are loved by God every bit as much as He loves you. And they are worthy of honor. They're worthy of being greeted. They're worthy of knowing their names. We have to treat people in a certain way. 
And then finally, he says, a clean mind. He says, keep oneself unspotted from the world. This world, I, I was saying to Karen the other night, an old, old song by George Reeves. How many of you guys even remember George Reeves? Old country western stuff. He used to say, this world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. This world that we live in, we live in by faith in the Son of God. That's what James is calling us to. That we don't allow the world to press us into its mold. We live for God no matter where we are. Whether it's at work, at home, in the community, in church. We live for God at all times. My question to you this morning is very simply. Based upon what you have heard, even if you didn't like anything that I personally had to say, you have heard God's word read aloud from James chapter 1, verse 19 to the end of the chapter. What are you going to do with the word of God that you've heard today? What are you going to do with it? Are you going to be just a hearer? Are you auditing class today? And if you're going to be a doer, what does that really look like? I mean, be practical. What does that look like in your life? Not what does that look like in your spouse's life, because you can think of all kinds of applications for them. What does it look like in your life? If you're going to be a hearer and not, or a, a doer and not just a hearer, what does that translate to in your life? So I'm going to ask if you would, just bow your heads for a moment. Bow your heads. God wants to not just save you from your sins and not just save you from hell and get you to heaven. God wants his life to transform your life in this life to become more and more like Jesus. That's what Romans 8 says. He has committed himself to the process of you being transformed. You being changed into the image of his son. That's what this is all about. Becoming more and more like Jesus. So let me ask you. Are you an angry person? Be honest. Would other people say you're an angry person? Is that something God would want to get at in you? Maybe you've become angry because it just seems like life's not fair. I do my best. I'm trying to live for God. I come to church. I pay my tithe. And it just seems like problems keep cropping up more and more and more. I love God with all my heart, but my family is sick and they've been sick for a while. I love God and money seems tight. Have you gotten a little bit angry with God about how he's allowing your life to go? Maybe it's even led to you checking out a little bit in your faith. Maybe. You've just been going through the motions. No one else knows it, but inside, you're feeling a vacuum. You can even remember times when God felt closer. But right now, just like I have all I can do just to get up in the morning, get out of bed. That's it. I use my bed as my escape. I use books as my escape. I use TV as my escape. I, I just, I'm just going through the motions. Or maybe for you, you have found that you've allowed the allure of this world to suck you in. 
You live one way here. You put on a good show here. But when you leave here, you get out there and you, you act no different than anyone else around you in the world. And maybe because of God's word today, you've said, I don't want to live that way anymore. I want this thing in me to be real. We have a team of people who are ready to pray for you. So I'm going to ask if you're on one of those team members, come on up if you would, just be up front. I guess you're going to kind of break up into a couple of groups, but we're not going to put out the helps signs today. I wanted to just give you an opportunity to get prayer. Um, one of the things that I am very aware of from mission trips is that when we were in Africa, one of the things that can happen in crossing rivers to get places is you find leeches sticking to you. And so you get back to where you're going and you're taking little matches and you're touching them and trying to get the leeches off. They just keep sucking you. But one of the interesting things that I discovered is that the best way to get leeches off is to actually take a little bit of oil and put it in hot bath water and get into the bath. And those leeches just fall off. You don't have to do anything weird. They just fall off. Maybe this would be a good time for you just to come forward and allow these folks to soak you in his spirit and his word. To allow the oil of the Holy Spirit to cause some of the leeches that are draining life from you to fall off. So, if you would like prayer, especially dealing with issues of anger, or auditing, just going through the motions. Or thirdly, you've allowed the world to begin to press you into its mold. And you say, I don't want to live that way. I want to live for Jesus no matter who they are or where I am. If that's something that's in your heart and you're saying, I want to live like a true believer, the teams are here ready to pray for you. And I would invite you to come. If you're not going to stay, you're not going to get prayer, I'd ask you to take it out into the foyer. And even there, keep it at a dull roar, please, because everything can be heard in here easily. Allow them to receive ministry. But I would encourage you. One of the things I've discovered in my life is that when God puts a prick in my heart, that's the time to respond. Not some other time. I'm not going to go home and think and pray about it more. That's the time to respond. So if God's pricked your heart, I invite you to come. God bless you.